if this is a service business and you're paying for it, you should expect the same you get from an airline, from a bank, you know, from an insurance company, from whatever, a clinic, whatever service that you're getting. So we just came out, you know, as I said, 50% naivety said, hey, we're the waste guys, you're paying for this, you know, it should be delivered on time, it should be a good service, it should be reliable, it should be dependable, it should be job done. And we came with that philosophy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Gene Brown. Gene is the founder of the City Bin Co. So not the Galway Bin Company or the Dublin Bin Company, but a bin company founded as a service enterprise with ambitions to service and handle waste globally. One of the things that he says people need to take away from today's podcast is to raise their sights and have more ambition. He did a quality engineering degree. He taught the subject. He even set up a consulting business, although he said he didn't call himself a consultant because he was in his early 20s and he thought that sounded a bit brash. But people needed ISO 27001 and he was the man until he and his partner who had an HGV license decided they would be better served for their own and the future of humanity to get into the waste management business, but to look at it from the services perspective. So his partner drove the truck and he lifted the bins and they, at the time, drove them a few miles down the road to the local landfill. He said it would be impossible to start the business today with the £6,000 that they used to buy their first truck. But we chat about his journey, how he scaled up, what tools he used, how important Rockefeller habits had been to him how he then did a reverse takeover and cultural transformation of a business in the Middle East. Great conversation with Gene today. I loved it. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So, hi, my name is Gene Brown. I'm the founder of a waste management company in Ireland called the City Bin Company. I am a reluctant entrepreneur. I fell into the entrepreneurship journey unknown a bit, and it's been a great journey over the last 30 years with different businesses. And here I am at the other side of the journey right now, having recently sold a business. And how did you end up in waste management? Great question. 50% naivety, 50%. My background's in quality engineering. I've been lucky throughout my life. I was very lucky coming out of college that I had a quality engineering qualification. And that was like being a data scientist today, right? This is back in the late 80s, early 90s. Everybody wanted ISO 9000. We were the first crop of guys out of and girls out of college with this. I was fortunate to have worked with the multinational DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation at the time, huge business that subsequently was sold to Gateway and then to Hewlett Packard. But I got really early training at a multinational. 
how to do things right. I had a passion for service quality, more so than manufacturing quality, though I had done stints in as a quality manager in the manufacturing. And there was just a lot of demand for the role. So at 24, I set up my, my own business as a consultant. I never called myself a consultant. I felt I was way too young, but I certainly had expertise in, in the area. And after a couple of years of that, I knew I could talk the talk, but I didn't know if I could walk the walk, right? So it's easy to go into somebody else's company and tell them, you should do X, you should do Y, this should be better, the process should be better, whatever. But really, I didn't have any exposure to the financial part of those organizations or maybe the HR part. And I wondered if I had my own company, would it be as good as I'm telling other companies to be, you know, would I be able to work within these constraints? And I had an idea that I'd like to set up a operating company, and but I'd never work at it. I'd keep the consultancy going. And then I go into this operating company that was set up one day a week, like win on a Friday and nearly consult for free and put the systems in because it was really systems I was very interested in and customer service. And I had very strong theories about customer service. So I wanted to create something. I go in and consult on it. I wouldn't work on a day-to-day basis, but I put the systems in and I put the platform in, et cetera. I teamed up with a friend of mine. from. He was back from the US. He was looking for something to do. We spent a year looking for a business to go in together, right? So he, he was already in the restaurant business. I had the consultancy. We were both the same age. We were both 26, 27. We spent a year looking at different industries. We looked at everything and anything, clean room technology. We looked at hospitality. We looked at software. We looked at everything, but we didn't have the skill set. The dot-com was just starting back then. This is 96. We didn't have the skill set for, we didn't have the money for clean room technology. And we stumbled across the waste business and we thought, wow, this is the one. And there was two reasons. One, my partner Glenn could drive a truck, he had a HGV license since he was 19. And he wasn't really, wasn't afraid to turn his hand to anything. And uh, I could barely drive a car and I didn't know anything about trucks. Uh, but I knew about business and I knew about systems. And what attracted me to the waste business was the service in the waste business was the worst. I mean, next to cable TV at the time, I think it was just the worst customer service. It's changed a lot since then. And I was going to say, in Ireland, it's the end user pays, don't they? Whereas in the UK, it's paid for by the council. Now they do, but not necessarily back then. But because back then, we only went into B2B. But there was an attitude among the kind of general public simmering around, well, look, you didn't expect a great service from the waste guy because if he was any better, he'd be doing something else, right? So we just changed all that. We took best practice from everywhere. And, you know, if you're, if this is a service business and you're paying for it, you should expect the same you get from an airline, from a bank, you know, from an insurance company, from whatever, a clinic, whatever service that you're getting. So we just came out, you know, as I said, 50% naivety said, hey, we're the waste guys. You're paying for this. You know, it should be delivered on time. It should be a good service. It should be reliable. It should be dependable. It should be job done. And we came with that philosophy and we just stole best practice from everywhere. And of course, when I was doing the consulting, I was doing a lot of quality auditing. So I had the privilege of going into a different company every day in a different industry. And they were paying me for to go in and do an audit. But I was actually learning more in that company than I was giving. You know, you see different ways of doing things. We just literally stole in the best way possible, applied all these to the waste management business, never considered ourselves to be in the waste management business. We were completely delusional. Like even to this day, I never really ever once got out of bed thinking about waste management. 
in the purest sense. I got out of bed thinking about service. It's funny because when I spent my time at Rackspace and we said, look, we're not in the IT business. We're in the IT business by accident. We're in the service business. It just so happens we're deploying service in the IT industry. And when I've spoken to other great service leaders, I think they have the same attitude. Hurst Schultz at Ritz-Carlton, we're in the service business. We're in the hospitality business. Just so happens we're in the hotel business. Correct. And for me, it was really at the, you know, I was going from the Monday to Thursday consulting with the suit and tie on to Friday, Saturday, and Sunday on the back of the truck. But I really didn't, I never considered it something different. It was just a concern. It was just pure service. You know, we were learning every day. Again, these are the very exciting times of any company, these early days when you're grafting and it's, you're running on adrenaline and hope and naivety and you just get there. And how long did it take before you were only working five days a week and you were given up the consulting business? I gave, it was almost immediate. The contracts that I had, I had to let them run out. I didn't take on any more clients, but it took about 18 months for it to, you know, for everything to flow completely out. I was also teaching at the time at one of the local technical universities in the West of Ireland. So I had to kind of extrapolate myself from that as well. But, you know, we were working day and night at that point, whether it was the consulting and, you know, we used the funds from the consulting then to grow the waste business because it's very capital intensive business, as you know. So again, we were just super fortunate in timing. We could not start the business today on the money we started the business on in 1997. Even inflation adjusted, you know, just you just couldn't do that today. And what's why is that? Is that just because the market is in a better position? Like it's, you've got you've got a smaller number of bigger competitors. No, not really, because the competitors never bothered us in the sense at the beginning because we were so we had such belief in what we were doing and it was so different in the service and, you know, bringing a brand to this business, you know, small things that are taken for granted today. But no, that that's not why. For the Mostly regulatory changes. For instance, if you go back 30 years ago, everything went into one bin outside the restaurant or outside the pub or the house even, and that just went to three miles down the road to the local landfill, right? So you needed one, you needed one truck and we had one secondhand truck and which we bought in the UK for the equivalent of six, you know, five, six thousand euros today. And a new truck that a new truck cost two hundred and fifty thousand euros. So that'll give you an idea of where we were. But the thing was you went to the one big client, you went to the hotel, everything was in one bin, you put it in the truck and you drove away. So two of us, you know, Glenn could drive and I was on the back. So that worked. If we wanted to start today, I need a truck for recycling, a truck for compost, a truck for paper, you know, all these different things because of the legislation. And the landfill is no longer three miles down the road. They're like, you know, hundred and something miles away. So you could never, you, you could, and the trucks have to be in better condition. All of these things are progressive and good, but we were just fortunate, you know, it's a lot from an environmental point of view, the model is a lot better from an operational entrepreneurial startup point of view. It was much easier then. So the barriers to entry have risen significantly, I would say. And so you started two men and two men in a truck. How quickly did, you know, what was the pace of growth? Were you flat for a while or, and then it took off or? No. Did you, were you sort of 100% growth year over year forever or? Yeah, we were growing like 25% compounds, annual growth, if I recall, for the first couple of years. We were growing like crazy. And the competitors kind of didn't bother with us in the beginning. They probably thought it was kind of an amusing little thing going on over the year. And, and our ambition always outweighed our resources. You know, we always, like we call the company the City Bin Company because we didn't want to be, you know, confined to one city, you know, by calling it after the city, you know, it's not like Dublin Waste or something. And we didn't call it Brown Ward Waste after ourselves. 
you know, we had this always had this bigger, bigger ambition. And we were we used partners at different times. We brought in different equity partners, to, you know, always strategic that took us into Dublin at one point, and then we bought them back out. Then we went to the Middle East for six years. We were operating across five countries in the Gulf. Then we bought that partner back out and so on. And our latest partner, private equity partner, has been Carlisle, a great partner. So we always, A, educated ourselves, and then B, brought in expertise and stood on the shoulders of giants, I would say, at different times in the in, in the industry. What took you to the what took you to the Middle East? Were you had you just got to the point where you'd that growth was more economical than revenue acquisition in Ireland? Again, it's you know, you can look back in hindsight and you can go in and talk to a group of people or go into a university or whatever, you know, talk about the entrepreneurial journey. And you can when you talk about it in hindsight, it all sounds extremely strategic. But actually, if you're being honest, at the time, it's kind of par- maybe partially strategic, but a whole lot of it is a bit of luck and tactics and just taking advantage of the environment at a given time. If you go back to 2008 to 2012 period, particularly in Ireland, the economy was on its knees. I mean, the banks had pretty much collapsed. You couldn't get a car loan in Ireland, never mind a loan for it. Our financing for trucks and bins. And there was a lot of casualties in our industry. And as a high capex industry, it was a very difficult time. But we did have our own software, which we had developed from day one. And we built the first versions of it ourselves in-house. And then we outsourced it. And then we, you know, at one point we had eight software engineers, you know, so we had a kind of a diamond in the rough there in that period. So we had an idea to extract the software from the operating company and try and commercialize that for waste management companies globally. And I was pitching in Silicon Valley and in London and other places. And after one of the pitches, a gentleman came up to me from the Middle Eastern gentleman and said he wanted to know more about the company, about the software. So he came to see us. And then he represented a family office from the Middle East. And then he brought somebody from the family. And I was pitching software. And during the pitch, they said, software is interesting, but I want to buy the company. And I said, mm, I don't have a mandate to sell the company, have partners, shareholders, whatever. Uh, and they said, well, look, we buy them out. And we want the management philosophy that you've got. We want the systems that you've got. And we want the management team as well that you got. And then they added that they were the biggest privately owned waste management company across the Middle East and Africa. The family owned this. And again, it's so, so, so fortuitous. We ended up, my partner at that point, Glenn, sold out. Uh, to the Middle East partner, and off we went again on another journey, the management team, myself, and we went across to the Middle East, and we ended up taking over their B2B operations across. They were a business-to-government specialist and a big company and a great company, and we didn't know anything about B2G, but they didn't know a lot about B2B, which was our sweet spot, but they had built a sizable B2B business across seven or eight cities in the Gulf and in South Africa and other places. And we ended up taking that over, doing somewhat of a turnaround on it for them. It had become a bit neglected within their bigger portfolio. And that took us to the Middle East for six or seven years. And it was an extremely exciting time, particularly because back in Ireland in that period, you know, there was no growth. Everything was gloomy. And, you know, it was just fantastic to test our model, test our theories, you know, test our software platform, which we also ended up building out there and so on. And really, and test the culture because the culture is the most important thing. And, you know, if you have a company culture and then how do you bring that into another like geographical national culture in, in the bigger scheme of things? How do they marry? So it was really exciting. And so tell me about that culture transfer. That's, that's one of those things that's 
maybe we talk about what culture had you built in Ireland and then we'll go and then you can tell me about how, what bits of it you found easy or difficult to take to the Middle East. Yeah, okay. So the whole culture was in Ireland was built around service. And so we had, again, I've mentioned, don't think wasting service. And people today talk about purpose. Everywhere you go, you hear about purpose. So, but we had, we drafted the original business plan that we went to the bank with in 1996. We said that our whole mission or raison d'etre or whatever was to provide excellent customer experiences. And that the whole culture was built around that. So, you know, we wanted HGV drivers who had a very strong customer service ethos. We weren't looking for HGV drivers who had a HGV license. We, you know, that was no good to us. We needed a particular type of HGV driver who was very high on the customer service piece and who understood it. We we're also had a kind of a progressive culture in, in, in the sense that there was a lot of autonomy given to everybody. It was very clear what the goals were in terms of service. Everything was built around our NPS and our NPS score. Our bonuses were paid on NPS, not on kind of any other type of productivity. And, you know, we were a young company and we wanted it to be a good and fun place to work, but it was really always about, we'd say, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, you know, the householder at the end of the chain who's getting the service, or the hotelier or factory owner or whatever. You know, the culture was completely built around the service, even though it was waste. And, you know, and our MPS scores were so high, like we had kind of articles and whatever studies done on us because of that, because nobody could imagine that somebody in our industry could be rated so high in terms of service or be known for service. And, you know, then that caught the attention of whatever journalists or some authors like Vern and et cetera, how we managed to do that. But it was really down to the culture because nobody in the business, I mean, nobody considered themselves working in the waste business, really that anybody, why would you want to work in the waste business? It's not a nice business, right? It's not a great business to be in. So why would you want to be number four or number five in the waste business? But you could be number four or number five in a warehouse industry. You know, to be in the waste business and to do it right, you really got to do it extra right. You got to make the you got to make it a great place to work for your employees to come. It's a tough job, but there's got to be something in it at the end of the day other than the paycheck. And what are the types of myths and legends that you told within your business to inspire people to the service levels that that they delivered? At different stages, the business needs different type of leaderships. So at the early stage of the business, I was involved in everything myself. I was all over everything. The only thing I couldn't do was drive a truck. But I mean. Nothing happened without my involvement. So you, you got to be willing to do things yourself that you're going to be asking other people to do. So that's where it starts. I remember very early, I mean, probably in the first 18 months, we had a complaint. I, I took a phone call from a very irate lady and a driver, one of our drivers that she felt it cut her off at the roundabout, you know. So when the driver came back, I challenged him on it and he said, well, she was dreaming, whatever. So I... Immediately, I don't know why, I, you can't do this today, right? You cannot get away with this today. But I told him, look, at if he didn't go and buy her flowers on the way home and go to her house and deliver them, that he was fired. And th that just went down. That became a legend in the over the years. I hear this, I hear about this story today. But it said that it wasn't something that, it wasn't a ploy or something strategic. It was just, and it was just a gut reaction, you know. And that's how we felt. That's how we felt. And even to this day, you know, we get very upset on the company over any type of complaint. And, you know, if, if we see our NPS score dropping a point or anything, we get really, really upset. We're not as upset for, you know, other things that other waste companies would be upset by. We get very upset over a an unhappy customer. It really 
stops everything in the it reminds you of the Toyota production line where anybody can stop the line if there's a, any kind of fault. So there was lots of myths and you know, my background in quality engineering meant that the process was always pretty fine-tuned. There was a place for everything and everything had a place. And this myth started around the company that we weren't allowed to have, there was post-it notes weren't allowed in the company because they were kind of seen. Sense of sloppiness. And if it wasn't captured in the system, in, in the software system, then, you know, it was no good something up on a post-it note. So to this day, I think there's a rumor about around that you're not a lot of post-it notes in the company. So I, there's no post-it notes in the company. But I don't actually, that's one was more of a myth, but it grew legs. So all of these, and then there's, you know, you get asked to go to speak places and it creates a perception and, you know, but there are days, there are days when you'd wonder, you go into the office and you'd wonder how we won anything, you know, so to be honest, everybody has those days. But What's the history of your net promoter score? So what is it now? What has it been? Uh, it started off, it was always high from day one. We used a company, Satmetrics, and in in, they were based out of somewhere in California. They were spin out of Bain, I think, on day one to start measuring our NPS. That's about 11 or 12 years ago, I can't remember. So I'm sure when I contacted them, I thought, okay, some waste company in Ireland, yeah, all right, you know, just another client, sign them up. And at the time, we had about 60,000 customers, I think. And I de I decided, okay, let's do everybody on day one in one shot. You know, we just email, like everybody will get email from Satmetrics asking them to, to, to rate us according to the criteria. And say it went out on Monday morning, and it all goes from Satmetrics and whatever, their servers. By about four o'clock that afternoon, as soon as the guys in the US came into work anyway, I started to get emails from them saying, wow, like, can we understand a bit more about what's going on here? Our scores were up at Apple and Amazon. They were up at 82 and so on, on the NPS. Which is world-class, absolutely world-class. They couldn't understand it. So then they asked us immediately, could they do a case study on us? I said, sure. So really what they had realized and they told me was we were the first kind of waste company that came onto their platform waste companies, again, don't measure this kind of thing. They're more interested in all important stuff, but they never extend it this far into the service. So they thought, okay, and they're a big US company. They're thinking, okay, this is a whole new vertical. Okay, we're beating ourselves up with the other NPS platforms trying to, you know, target the airlines onto our platform, target the horizons and, you know, Verizons, et cetera, mobile phone companies onto the platform. But the whole waste industry was a whole new vertical for them. So they thought if they can do the case study on us, then they can go to the big US players in waste management and say, look, this is possible. And so that's what they were doing. So that's the kind of history that it's still, it's still up to this day. It's in the mid seventies at the moment. Yeah, it's still like extremely high and we're very proud of it. Do you measure staff engagement? We used to do a lot on that. I'm not sure as much anymore. I should clarify that I stepped down as CEO just over a year ago. Uh, we were using Tiny Pulse, platform Tiny Pulse at one point, and then we were using another one while we were in the Middle East. So we did. Uh, and, you know, at one point we had our own learning engagement officer and we tried to do, like we have a brand promise for customers, we also brought in a brand promise for employees that as well as treating them with fairness and gratitude and being thankful that they chose the City of In Company as a place to work, we'd also support their educational goals because most, by and large, 90% of the people who work for us work out in the field. Most of them didn't have the opportunity to go to third level, particularly the guys on the back of the truck and indeed some of the drivers. And one thing that I've been extremely, again, very fortunate is since my time in starting with the company, I've been able to educate myself a huge amount over the years. And I always believe that everything else can fail. I mean, the company can fail. You can lose the company. You know, you can go bankrupt. You can lose your house. You can lose everything. But nobody can ever take education off you. I mean, really, it's one of the things, if you get it, you have it. 
And we've been very successful and very involved with our field staff and trying to first find out and then help them achieve their whatever they want to be. If they want to go on to be a mechanic, if they want to go on to be an accountant, you know, outside of the company even. Because if we get three to five years off somebody on the back of a truck, that's amazing. And if they have the right attitude, that's brilliant. And if we can help them, you know, move on to something that else that they want to do, we're really proud to be able to do that. And at the end of that journey, all we want from them is to say, look, do you have a brother or a cousin or somebody who can come and join you? Who has the same attitude that you have? It only works, you know, they only work if they have the right service attitude. And, you know, in terms of staffing, you know, if you don't have a service attitude and if you don't understand customer service and you come to work at the city bin company, you're going to think we're freaks. You know, if you're just a driver with a HGV license, and you don't have any kind of customer empathy, you're probably going to quit or you're not going to last at the company. I mean, we, and we've we got very good at the hiring and the filtering, and we use some systems on the way in and some psychometric tests designed for this, you know, attracting people within the service industry because it's only a certain type of person that can work in the company. It's interesting. I remember talking to the head of HR at McDonald's in the Republic of Ireland, and he said something very similar about their store managers. He said, look, you know, if we're really hiring... An, a bloke, man or woman in their early 20s, who didn't get any, didn't do well at school because school wasn't for them when they were there. And they've realized that they've got this last, they've got an opportunity to turn their life around. And if we can get three to five years from them, then, and teach them some skills that changes their life, then that's a fantastic match. What proportion of your employees fell into that category where you were getting three to five years out of them, but you were really changing their lives? Well, I think you'd have to ask them that changing somebody's life is a big statement. I think if you, which if you look on the kind of longevity or how long the people are with you, I mean, we have drivers, you know, lots of people 20 years with us. We have our management team and look at, I'm the figurehead in many ways and I'm the founder and I was a CEO for 25 years and you're talking to me, but as you know, you cannot do this on your own. And I have been absolutely blessed with the team that I have had around me and the team who are leading the company today. The same team, by and large, 90% of them are there through the whole journey. And that, and I think the company has grown, they've grown, I've grown, and it's been a really spectacular journey. But there's no way that we'd be anywhere without them. And again, it takes a, it's a different kind of leadership that's required now as we're much more established and bigger. It's not the founder who, you know, is 24 hours a day all over everything and double checking everything. That's the last thing that our team need now. And really, it's really a joy and a blessing for me as a founder to, to have such a team. What's the scale of the organization now as you exit subject to regulatory approval? In terms of employees? Well, yeah, and employees, customers, turnover. We talked about when you and your partner started on the back of a truck. Where have you got to? What's the sort of... Yeah, well, the, at the height of it, it was the Middle East period. So we would have had, I think it was 1,150 employees in total. Then when we exited the Middle East, we would have fell back to about 180 in the Irish market, which is where we are now. We're probably the first, second, third biggest player in the Dublin in the Dublin market, having come from zero 10 years ago because we didn't start in Dublin. We started in, in the West of Ireland. And as you said, the interesting thing about the Irish market is that everybody pays for their own waste directly pays to providers. So it's extremely competitive and you can cancel. You can we don't do any contracts. So, you know, if you don't like the service you got today or you don't like the look of the guy that took your bin yesterday, you just ring up and you cancel business, the service immediately. So that, that, that's how competitive it is. 
I had Fred Reichelt on the podcast and he said, look, if you've got a differential in net promoter score between in a commodity space between one, one competitor and another, over time, that net promoter score differential will account for 85% of the customer migration between one supplier and another. And so are you still seeing that play out in Dublin? You're seeing, you know, your two larger competitors who still don't get the service business. Are you still seeing customers bleed from them to you? They're learning very quickly. I mean, there's no way that I pick players that are left in the industry today to the ones that were there 30 years ago, 25 years ago. The short answer to your question is yes. Well, in our industry, people are never going to pay extra for a commodity unless they're in real pain, right? Because everybody already has a service. It's like any utility that you have, like your broadband or your gas or electricity. You're not gonna. You're not gonna sit. And if it's working, you're not gonna sit at home and say, "Oh, I think I'll jump to another guy and pay more." Right? You're just not gonna do that. So, generally, the competition initially in our industry is price competition. It's more about churn. Like the opposite side of the coin of the NPS for us is the churn, and our churn is extremely low compared to the industry standards. And that gives you an, a much longer customer lifetime value, which means that the customers don't leave you. Right? You gotta. You gotta incentivize them to switch. Right. There's no question about that, you know. And but once they switch, they don't leave you. They stick with you much longer than they stick with the competition. And we saw that even in the at the sales process as we when we exited, you know, the you know, that created additional value for us in terms of that customer lifetime value. And we were able to measure the half-life. You know, we measure our churn. Again, other waste companies don't do this. We measure our churn religiously in our own system spits us out the number every Sunday evening of the net annual churn for the different categories of household and business, et cetera. And then we can measure the half-life. Once we know that, we can measure the half-life of a customer. So if you know the half-life of a particular customer, you can put a value on that and you know see how that will flow. Those cash flows will, will go out over time. And that certainly created a lot of extra value for us in our exit process. So the opposite side of the NPS is the churn. It's the other benefit. They're both good sides. What what do you know now you wish you'd known earlier? In general life or in business? Either, both. Things are never as good or as bad as they seem. I mean, we've been through some hell, what we thought at the time, through the financial crisis. At one point, we had our fleet of trucks burned out in an arson attack in Dublin. We like through some horrible stuff. And again, equally, when things are going absolutely great, and this stands to life as well, when things are going fantastic, that's the time you need to be additionally wary. You could be bordering on hubris, you know, at that point. And that's when you really need to have your antenna up. So I would say something along those lines, yeah. Did you find out who had was behind the arson attack? No comment. <laughs> okay. For another day over a beer. For another day, yeah. Another podcast. Different, it's a, that's a different podcast. So yeah, we have a fair, we have a fair idea. But it's a, it's a, that's 2013. That was early 2013. So it's 10 years ago, actually, now. What? And if you think, you mentioned Vern Harnish earlier, and I, as I was saying to you before we uh, we started recording, you and I met when Vern was over in, in Dublin last year and you were speaking at an event. What, when you think about scaling up, what are the, is the, do you have a favorite tool? Is there a, is there a something you couldn't have done without? Yeah, I would say the Rockefeller habits themselves and Vern's first book was transformational for us as a company. And it came at the right time. It came right during the crisis, the financial crisis. And 
There's nothing better than having a burning platform to focus everybody and then having a framework to go along with that. So I would say Vern's book and the tools that came. And in terms of, you know, we've been great learners and we had our own, and we still have like our garbage university, you know, and we started it during the financial crisis when everybody wasn't as kind of busy or the business wasn't growing at the same pace that it had been. And we were doing three hours a week of kind of learning time with the management team or studying different books or case studies and et cetera. So there's a great book by a dentist called Paddy Lund called Building a Happiness-Centered Business. Really, again, I don't know if you know it, is it really good? It's that whole, who's your core customer? So, I mean, you know, I can't remember whether he uses net promoter score, but certainly he's charging a smaller number of people for a higher quality of service and he wants people to be happy to come to the dentists. Well, we actually brought him to Ireland to speak to our team. We found out he was in the UK at one point talking and we brought him over and then I invited another few companies, you know, kind of to make it pay. Uh, so that was a great book. In terms of strategy, Richard Rummelt, uh, good strategy, bad strategy. I think you can't, you can't beat that book. The Hard Thing About Hard Things is a great book. I think it's Ben Horowitz. You know, I was touched by the story where you, ha- you were trying to get the people on the back of the lorries you know, you were sort of an ad campaign. You were you ran to hire people, get paid to work out. Is that more myth than... No, actually, this is an absolute true story. So I got a letter on point 15 years ago, almost a handwritten letter, by a young gentleman called Gary Minogue. And he wanted to... He was training for a world championship in kickboxing and some, you know, one of these just many different weights, like featherweights or whatever. And he wrote to me and saying that he'd like to come and work for the company because he wanted a job where he starts, and he wanted to work on the back of the truck, so he wanted a job that starts early in the morning, that he can get up and work and be finished by lunchtime, but also he wanted something physical. So the job itself on the back of a truck is very physical. It's a workout. You're running behind the truck, emptying bins. And then he goes to the gym and does his own program for the afternoon as he trained for his world championship. And the penny just dropped when he wrote the letter. So Gary came and he joined us on the back of the truck. And thankfully, Gary's still with us today. And today he's, an, and he's a super guy. And today Gary's in sales, right? So Gary has progressed through the company and now he's in sales. And he went on, he won his championship. And then we got the idea. And with Gary's permission, we used his, if you see back in Vern's book, I think Vern is a picture of the flyer or the posters that we had. And we had Gary, that's actually Gary in the poster, fully ribbed. And uh, muscled up with his belt on, with his, you know, world championship belt on. So no, that's absolutely true. And uh, yeah. Fabulous. Gene, what's one thing people should do tomorrow to make progress on this scaling up journey, or maybe even on the service journey? Is there a top tip, something you think people could go and do differently tomorrow? I think it's really about belief. And so I come from a small city in the West of Ireland. And you grow up with a, some biases, I think. You think that somebody in the bigger city further away is always better than you. And then, you know, you think that, you know, the guy in Dublin must be always better or the company in Dublin and then the company in London, you know. And as we've traveled the world and operated in different places, I think and we've proven and we've seen it, our company turned out to be as good as any other company in the world. And all of our team are kind of from the same local area and we... And, you know, you can compare us with some of the biggest and best companies in, in, in our industry in, in the US and in the Middle East and Asia. And we're the same, if not better than all of them. So it's just a, the kind of belief in ourselves. I said at the beginning, it was 50% naivety and 50% luck. 
part of that naivety is a kind of a is a resilience and belief a belief in yourself. I mean, you can't drift into hubrism and that, but it's a certain absolute belief, particularly in this day and age because of technology, the world has flattened an awful lot. So, I think that's that that's the most important thing. Inter- ambition, you know, you got to set out the dream for what you want to do and then work back from there. And then you got to roll up your sleeves. <laughs> Brilliant. Gene, thank you very much indeed for speaking with me today. It's been been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not craft newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.